So today um, we're here talking with David Moore, who is the CEO of 24-7 Real Media, um, who a couple of years ago were acquired by WPP. Um, David's been a part of the internet scene for a very long time in New York and I think has a pretty interesting story to tell. So David, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So maybe can you just tell us a little bit about who you are and where you come from? Well, I um, originally from Chicago, got into the television advertising business there, moved to New York City when I was uh, 25 years old, and um, have been in the advertising business ever since then. I've um, always been interested in startup opportunities, and um, as a result, I left the traditional television advertising business and moved to Turner Broadcasting in uh, the late 70s before uh, CNN had even been launched and uh, sold for uh, Ted Turner's uh, superstation, WTBS, here in New York. And selling advertising on cable in the early 80s was almost like selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door. Nobody wanted to uh, to buy, and it was um, uh, really, really hard to sell. However, as cable penetration continued to um, uh, grow throughout the United States. I was recruited by Viacom to help them launch a new network, which in 1982 was called uh, Cable Health Network. And uh, Cable Health Network ultimately became Lifetime Television, and I spent uh, about uh, 12 years working at Lifetime Television in um, various uh, sales management uh, roles. I uh, started a left lifetime and, and started a business um, which was a online service for doctors, and uh, actually ended up selling that to uh, Reuters in 1993, and that gave me an introduction to uh, the possibilities that existed for advertising on um, on the internet. And in uh, 1995. I created a, um, essentially a uh, sales representation business for websites that um, ultimately became a, a network of websites. And in uh, the fall of 1997, I raised uh, $10 million in, in venture capital, and I started 24-7 Media, as it was called in those days, at the beginning of 1998. We went public in August of 1998, and uh, by the um, first quarter of 2000, we had uh, 52 offices in 29 countries. We had 1,200 employees. We had a market cap of about uh, uh, almost $2 billion. Our stock price was $69, and we were uh, cash flow break-even on a $400 million run rate for uh, 2000. Of course, as everyone knows, marketplace peaked in March. NASDAQ reached an all-time high. And from that point onward, the business um, and stock price just started to spiral down along with uh, the rest of the industry. By um, September of uh, 2000, we were losing $15 million a month. 
Uh, we made our first series of uh, staff cutbacks. We thought we cut very deep and let 400 people go in fourth quarter of 2000. And we continued, we began the fight to stay alive. And for two years, it was a real battle. And uh, I think the low point for us was we finally were down to 200 employees in North America only. Our market cap was $10 million. Our stock price was $0.10. Cents. And we were on the verge of, of, of going out of business, being delisted from NASDAQ. And it was um, sometimes difficult to see how we were going to continue to pay our employees. However, we managed to survive, and as the business and industry started growing again in uh, 2002, we did as well. And um, we were able to uh, build the business back up again to the point where in July of 2007, uh, we were acquired by WPP for uh, $650 million. At that time, our revenues were $200 million and we were uh, dropping about uh, $20 million to uh, the EBITDA line at that time. So it was um, a, a wild ride. I'm happy to report that as part of the WPP family of companies, if we were a public company, we would be reporting somewhere in the neighborhood of $800 million worth of, uh, of revenues this year. And our business has, has flourished and, and prospered primarily due to great execution by our employees here. But that combined with uh, the ownership of WPP has just been a, a terrific, terrific um, move for the company overall, and we find ourselves in the position as, uh, to help drive a, a big part of the, the WPP digital strategy, uh, utilizing the, the technology that has been uh, a mainstay of the company. Yeah, I normally don't let people talk for so long. Like, I interview and I ask a lot of questions, but, I mean, what you were saying there was fascinating, and so... Um, Thank you for sharing all of that. That was yeah. Well, I didn't know. I didn't think you wanted me to start with my where I went to grade school. I've, I've got a lot of questions, but I'll, I know, and I'll go. I mean, I've got a lot of stuff I want to ask you about, but um, mm -hmm. maybe just to step back a little bit, like where do you live? You live in Manhattan, married, kids, grandkids. Yeah, I um, I actually um, am now uh, right residing in Manhattan. I have uh, two children. I have a son who's uh, Chris, who's 25 years old, who actually works for 24-7 now. He's an account manager here and has been here a couple of years. And I have a daughter, that uh, Alexis, who graduated from uh, um, college uh, just this last May and is about to enter the job market and is uh, moving to Manhattan at the end of the uh, uh, end of the month or early September, and it's uh, likely that she will uh, uh, seek a job in the uh, digital ad industry as well. Um, unfortunately, um, my wife passed away on June 20th, and uh, after um, which would have been about uh, 29 years of, of marriage this September. So uh, it's just the three of us now, and, um, and we're all going to be in Manhattan together shortly, living in different places, of course, but uh, still a very tight-knit family. Sorry to hear that about your wife. 
Yes, thank you. She had uh, fought. She was diagnosed with brain cancer about three years ago, and she fought it well. But um, three years, uh, the fight ended, and uh, you know, there's just so much you can do with situations like that. And she uh, did her best, but as you know, there's sometimes your best isn't enough in those situations. I'm, yep. I'm interested uh, also to understand then about um, how the company got founded. Um, uh-huh. It seems like yours is a company that half of New York is, is partially responsible for founding. So after I'd sold this online service for doctors to Reuters, I was looking around for something else to do. And one of the guys, the guy that had run Lifetime Television for a number of years, had bought a company called Petri Television, which was a conventional television representation firm where they would sell advertising on behalf of TV stations. And he hired me to expand into new businesses. And so when I got there with this recent uh, experience with uh, this online service for doctors, it seemed to me that the Internet was going to be a very big advertising medium. And, and having been through cable and seeing how tough it was to sell in the early days and then how it became mainstream media, and as you know, today ESPN is probably the most, is the most profitable television network uh, in the world, um, I thought that there was great promise for the web. So what I did was I started this representation of websites and sell advertising on their behalf. And I did that mm-hmm. within the company Petri Television and um, changed, evolved into a network, which we launched in 1997. And in, in uh, July or June of, of 1997, DoubleClick, um, secured $40 million in venture capital funding. And I went into the owner of Petri Television. I said, you know, we've got eight guys selling advertising for websites. DoubleClick just got $40 million in funding. You know, this is going to be a serious business. We really need to invest. And he said, you know, I really don't have the money to invest right now, but why don't you go look for some partners and let's see what we can do. And so I um, decided that after looking around outside, the best thing that I could possibly do would be to buy the company. And so I made a deal with Petri Television to buy this little interactive business, and I closed the deal on September 30th of 1997, and I had three months to go out and raise money because um, after that I would not be able to fund it on my own anymore. And so I hit the streets, and um, this was before it was easy to raise venture capital, which got a lot easier in 1998 and 99 and early 2000. Um, And I ran into a company that was funded by a fellow by the name of Jack Rivkin, who was uh, at that time working at uh, uh, Citigroup and managed uh, a venture fund on behalf of um, Sandy Weil. And his company, Interactive Imaginations, had hit some tough times. It uh, was being run by a a very young guy who was only uh, 27 years old. And um, he was looking for essentially adult leadership and was willing to double down, if you will. And so we um, decided that we would uh, merge interactive imaginations with this little interactive uh, unit that I had at Petrie 
and that he would put $5 million into the company. He also brought along another venture firm at that time called Prospect Street Ventures. So $5 million, merged the two companies together, and I would be CEO. And at the same time, there's a Petri competitor called Katz Communications, also had a little interactive unit. They couldn't afford to invest in that unit. And that small unit was out there looking for funding as well. And, um, uh, you know, when they heard I got funding, uh, they went running to Citigroup and some of the other investors that I was talking to and saying, you know, hey, how about us? Can we be involved too? So Jack said to me, what do you think? Should we cut them in? I said, well, I don't have a problem cutting them in. However, we need more than $5 million. And he goes, well, I think, you know, I'd be willing to put some more in. And another investor that I've been talking to um, uh, asked if he could join the consortium of, of Citigroup and uh, Prospect Street Ventures, and that was Big Flower Holdings, which was run by a guy by the name of Ted Ammon, who was a uh, uh, investment banker. In fact, his claim to fame was that he was the banker at KKR that did the uh, leverage buyout of Nabisco. And he's in that book, Barbarians of the Gate. So I'm, I really, I'm really curious to understand the dynamics behind this because I've heard this story from other people who were involved at the time. Mm-hmm. And what I don't understand, I mean, a lot of um, entrepreneurs are very individualistic and want to run their own show. They want to go their own way. And right. you guys basically rolled together a bunch of um, top New York advertising firms at the same time and then made it all work. Yeah, we we rolled three companies together. Of course, I'm the only guy left, right? So there were there were two other founders that are, or you know co-founders, if you will, that came from Petri. Uh, there were was one founder that came from Interactive Imaginations, and then there were two founders that came from Cats. And my view, I you know because I was a CEO, I was the guy that got the money. Um, you know, my view was to the extent that we can create more critical mass quicker, you know, that we would be better off. And I had no problem cutting others into the pie. You know, do I think that they may owe me a lot more gratitude than they've, they've showed me over the years? That, that arguably is uh, the case. But, you know, two of the, three of the founders left in, you know, 1999. I'm sorry, four of them, right? Cashed their money in and and um, and and didn't do any of the heavy lifting, which of course I did when when we we hit the the skids um, along with the rest of the industry in in uh, 2000. But you know, for I think if I had it to do all over again, would I have cut them in to give them the same amount of equity that I originally had? Probably not, because I don't feel like they earned, you know, as much of it as I did because, as I mentioned, I'm the only one here, and I was the guy that did the heavy lifting in, in the, the times of trouble. Um, but overall, I think it was the right decision to put three companies together. It did give us that critical mass. You know, our, our business plan called for us to do about uh, uh, $7 million of, of revenue in, in 1998. We did 20. In uh, in 1999, we uh, uh, you know in the business plan, I was expecting to do about 15. We did 90 million dollars of sales, and even in spite of uh, the fact that we're on that 400 million dollar run rate, 
in 2000. We ended up doing like $135 million. In, but you, uh, you had a bunch of your guys cashed out when the markets were right at their peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, actually, the other founder I forgot to mention was uh, we had also merged in this company called Affinity, which was an ad serving solution that melted. And that guy got out in fourth quarter of uh, 1998. Same thing with the founder of Interactive Imaginations. Both those guys virtually did no work for 24-7 and, you know, cashed out a bundle and, you know, I don't really even know what they're doing today. You know, two, it was interesting in the beginning when you were telling us as, as, as sort of your timeline as you went through it. I don't know if you, you're aware of this, but your voice changed a lot as you were describing the time from sort of 2000 through 2003. Um, it obviously affected you a lot. Well, it was a very, very tough period of time. You know, I mean, um, it, it, you know, there's there's a lot of stories about guys that had a lot of money on paper and then lost it all during the, the crunch and never got back, right? And from, from my perspective, um, I certainly had, you know, a, a huge paper loss. Um, fortunately, I had been selling some stock prior to the, the, the crash, so I, you know, it wasn't like I hadn't gotten anything out. I had, um, you know, in retrospect, could I've gotten, should I've taken more out at that time? Yeah, probably, but it is what it is, and and I really recouped a lot when the business started growing again. Um, but it was there were six six significant events that allowed us to survive. I mean, I'll give you one example. In in first quarter 2000, uh, we were having discussions with Idea Lab, and Idea Lab was getting categorized as an investment company, and as a result, they were looking to buy a company so that they could become an operating company and not have to suffer some of the tax consequences that are involved with just being an investment company. And um, while the deal didn't, would never materialize. They said we are taking uh, some um, venture money in, and expect to go public in fourth quarter of 2000. And if you'd like to invest personally, we'd be willing to let you in. Um, additionally, if 24/7 wanted to invest in Idea Lab, uh, we'd be interested in that as well. So I remember calling Ted Ammon, who was this, you know, high-flying financier. And say to Ted, you know, we have an opportunity to invest in Idea Lab. And he said, um, what are the terms? He said, well, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of a $10 billion valuation. He goes, what's the minimum amount they'll take from 24-7? I said, $25 million. He goes, who else is in? I said, well, uh, uh, an American uh, computer company and a Japanese uh, venture firm. And he goes, sounds like a good deal to me. Let's do it. And uh, how much can I get in for? All our board invested in Idea. Lab. So, but 24/7 put 25 million dollars into Idea Lab, and of course they never got public. And in 2001, I needed money, and I was the first guy to settle with Idea Lab. I took 10 cents on the dollar. I got two and a half million bucks back on my 25 million dollar investment. However, that two and a half million dollars allowed me six more months of life. And that was one of six six significant events. Another one is that I sold... So, so in hindsight now, um, I mean, obviously that helped you save the company. Um, what would that $2.5 million have been worth today? Because, I mean, Idea Lab's done well. It, it what? 
Ideally, I've never today. It's well, it's never went public. You know, I, I don't know that anybody ever got a return at all on any of that money that was invested. I mean, hasn't, hasn't Bill Gross done incredibly well? I mean, he's the guy that invented pay-per-click advertising. I mean, well, he, he, he may have done well at the beginning. He may be doing well now. I don't know. But, but anybody that put money into Idea Lab in first quarter of 2000 lost their shirts. Oh, all right. I mean, look, I took 10 cents on a dollar. Yeah. Right? And uh, I'm sure you didn't do that for fun. No, no, no. I, I needed it. I had to do it. You know, another significant event was I had bought this company called Exactus in um, in the summer of uh, 2000. Actually, we, you know, made the deal at the beginning of 2000, didn't close until then because Exactus was also a public company. And um, I paid half a billion dollars for Exactus in 24-7 stock. I sold it. About two weeks before we're about to run out of money completely um, for thirteen million dollars in cash, and that the stock at that time was probably worth about five million <laughs> that five hundred million was five million, but I got thirteen million dollars in cash, and that also allowed me to live for you know another twelve months or or thereabouts um, i uh uh, we bought real media, and we bought real media on a, a just a, a stock basis at the end of uh, 2001. Our stock was at, I think, 15 cents at that time. And they had enough critical mass where we could have done the merger of equals. However, the company that was funding real media was a company called Publi Group, which is located in Lausanne, Switzerland. And they were not going to uh, fund real media anymore. They were going to shut it down. And when I offered to, to buy them, they did not want to do a merger of equals because they didn't want to wait for shareholder approval, you know, anything over 19.9% you have to get shareholder approval for. And uh, uh, so they said, we'll take 19.9% of the company, we'll take your stock, and I was able to get them to loan me money if I hit certain EBITDA levels. And ultimately, I converted the loan into equity. But had I not been able to buy real media, uh, again, I would have been out of business. So, you know, you know have, you, have you ever heard of a, there's an entrepreneur in Australia that uh, he, he died a few years ago um, named uh, Robert Holmes Accord? What's his name again? Robert Holmes Accord. He was a very, very successful Australian entrepreneur. No, you know, I never had the pleasure to meet him. Never had. He's um he 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 was uh, one of the, the I mean he was sort of at the level of um, Rupert Murdoch in the in the eighties when the when the crash came in the um, October eighty seven uh, he'd done very well built out very big um, I, I knew some of his family um, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. then after the the crash happened it totally destroyed everything and what people said about um, him being good in business was. It wasn't that he was good in business in building the company. It was what he did really well was salvaging things and putting everything back together once it had all gone bad. And that was sort of when people really came to respect his business um, his business skills. Would you feel like any of that applies to some of the stuff that you've gone through? Because it sounds like you've gone through some real messes. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think it's rare that that entrepreneurs don't go through some 
uh, valleys as they, and particularly if they do uh, more than one startup over the, the course of their career. You know, and some valleys um, are devastating and, and some folks don't ever recover. You know, they don't, they're not able to save the business. And, um, uh, but uh, I think the fellow you described and, and um, as well as the experience I had was, you know, about as volatile a situation as you could possibly imagine. I mean, on one hand, we were riding high, flying, you know, a company was just doing fantastic. And then all of a sudden, you know, the market starts crashing, and now we're in a near-death experience for two years. And i got to tell you, that was when um, I started doing triathlons, <laughs> and... Um, uh, because I, I had to have an outlet for that stress, and I found that swimming, biking, running gave me, um, you know, uh, was able to remove my head from the business for uh, that period of time. Uh, getting physically fit, of course, just makes you, I think, more competent overall. But that, that two years was the worst two years of my life in a, from a career perspective. Why did you do it? Because you'd already, you'd already taken a lot of cash off the table prior to that. Um, this was a company where you didn't hold all the equity or, or even probably a majority, I would imagine. You had, you were, you had a, a part of the equity. Why mm -hmm. not just say, well, things are bad right now. Let's do a sale or we'll wrap it up. I'll, I'll get myself cleaning out of this business. I'll weather down to the, well, the economy's not good, and then I'll go and look for the next thing to start. Why did you stick with it? Well, um, you know, I, I think some of it is genetic. Some of it is, you know, teachings from your parents that, you know, you finish what you start. And um, I, I had probably not had the typical, or I don't know if it's a typical outlook for an entrepreneur, but when I started the business, I was never thinking about an exit. I was always thinking about this being a long-term, profitable business where all the employees could share in its success. Uh, we could operate it in a, a family-friendly way. And, I, you know, it never occurred to me to, to really sell the business. And, of course, when times are tough, uh, it would have been pretty much impossible to sell the business, and I wouldn't have wanted to sell it at 10 or $15 million, which was what it was worth in, in 2001, according to the marketplace. Um, but, you know, it's like anything else. Um, is, is doing a triathlon, I've done an Ironman. I've run the New York City Marathon now for, you know, 10 years. And, and you know, when I, I start a race or I start a task, uh, I don't give up. And it's it's been... Um, it's been a characteristic that I've had, you know, since I can ever remember. You know, if you, you talk to people, I'm, I'm just not one to, to give up on something. And, um, and I was not going to give up on 24-7. And, you know, one of the things that I have to mention, and I, I talk to entrepreneurs all the time, and a lot of times I, they ask me for advice. And for a young guy who's not married, have any kids, you know, being an entrepreneur, I think, is, is a lot easier because the risk is only yourself. But when I started 24-7, I was 45 years old. You know, I had two, you know, preteen kids, and I, uh, um, you know, mortgages and expenses and, and everything else. And if my wife 
was not 100% behind me, it would have been extraordinarily difficult for me to have gone out and started 24-7. You know, the support of your wife is critical because if they're not behind it, and they're worried about you perhaps failing and you know where are we how are we going to pay our bills and this and that and the other thing which are you know reasonable um, concerns uh, makes it much tougher for an entrepreneur to succeed and in particular if he doesn't succeed his marriage is over right because she's telling him I told you you shouldn't have done this and so on and so forth so you know I guess long-windedly the support of your better half is, I think, uh, a real key to being a successful entrepreneur. So how were you how, – why did your wife support you through all that? I mean, as a woman, she wants security for a family and a kids and all that sort of stuff. She was – why did, how did you get her to go along with it? Well, my wife was a, uh, uh, a personality. I never wanted to marry somebody that was just dependent on me. I wanted to marry somebody independent that, you know, could uh, manage, you know, her own activities and not rely on me for, you know, her entertainment, so to speak, all the time. And you know the type. There's some women that just waiting at home for their husbands to get home. My wife was, you know, the opposite of that. And she was, um, uh, she she had a great deal of confidence in me. And uh, I, I think, I think probably more confidence in me than I had myself. And so she just believed that I could make it happen, and she urged me to do that and was, uh, you know, behind me 100% uh, the entire way. That was that was how she was. And was she happy? I mean, was she proud of you in the end? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she was, you know, she was very, very happy. So it was her, her, her um, you know, she loved trading stocks, you know, for starters. She was she also had her own tax business and she was you know, making a little money on her own, but she was a very successful uh stock trader. Uh, and just for, you know, our own personal uh, account. So having 24/7 on Nasdaq was uh, a lot of fun for her. Yeah, I I mean, I I've done a lot of interviews and I've never had an entrepreneur talk about that. But that's really interesting. Um, yeah. I want to I want to change on to some other stuff. Um, there's actually some big questions that have been dying to ask you, and we're we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. Um, the Wall Street Journal is trying to do a big expose into um, online tracking right now. Um, yeah. In my opinion, it's totally bogus what they're talking about, and they're trying to invent yeah. a story when there isn't one. Yeah. Um, they they did uh, an interview with Martin Sorrell, who's the CEO of. Um, your 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 uh, entire company now they're the acquiring company. Um, yep. It seems to me like he's the guy that's not going to really know as much of what's going on as as you. So if there's anyone, in fact, that the Wall Street Journal should have been talking to about this non-issue, in my opinion, it's you. What, what's your thoughts on it? Well, look, um, I think Barton is. Um, it's better they talk to him than me. <laughs> I, I would say because then I can't get into any trouble for saying something wrong. But um, you know, the the biggest issue I think that you, that has generated all this concern about privacy is that consumers 
you know, for starters, did not know, um, you know, that cookies were being placed on their on their computers. You know, and if you look at one of the stories that ran last week, you know, the the um, uh, the people were flabbergasted that 64 you know, different pieces of information were exchanged in a millisecond and that, you know, give um, the uh, ad, you know, the advertiser better understanding of, of, you know, who their ad is going to be displayed to. And, and, and that, that covert, um, seemingly, uh, this covert tracking, if you will, which it is not, but it appears that way to the consumer, and they don't really, they really don't know that uh, um, you know all this information is being gathered. Now, it's all anonymous, and when you think about it, if you're going to see advertising, wouldn't you prefer to see advertising that's relevant to you? And you know, frankly, uh, you know, it's not exactly a level playing field. You know, if you move into a new house, you know, you'll get a, 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 a piece of mail that says, uh, Dear Adrian, you know, welcome to the neighborhood. You know, have you considered uh, insurance or storm doors or new wallpaper or whatever the, the pitch is? You know, a new United States government licenses out the Department of Motor Vehicles database. So I can tell, you know, what kind of car you got and whether it's a leased car or you are uh, – you know, or or you purchased it, and you know when your <laughs> when your lease is up, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's some pretty specific information, and it's them and address, zip code. Now, you know, online, what we're doing is we're just analyzing behaviors, seeing what your predisposition is to do, so that we can serve up ads that that you're going to find more interesting. And what a lot of folks fail to realize is that a well-targeted advertisement uh, ceases to become an ad. It becomes useful information. Oh, I mean, I, I'm obviously well aware of this. I think the Wall Street Journal is trying to make a story. I mean, okay, Google can do some stuff, and, and Google's obviously wrestling with that at the moment. But, I mean, to, to be talking about cookies again, I mean, didn't we finish talking about cookies in, like, 1996? Yeah. I don't know. Like, to me, it just seems, seems like a... It, it is, but 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 you know the issue still is that I don't think we've done as good a job as we could have done educating the consumer about this. Now you know with the Democratic Congress in there, you're into this protectionist mode, and you know some of these congressmen are looking to pick up a cause that they think will be popular. Truth be told, the amount of people that are really concerned about their privacy is is small. And if you ask people would they rather get advertising or pay for content, they're going to say advertising every time. And so, you know, quid pro quo is if you want this stuff for free, you got to tell us more about yourself. And if you're not going to let us know more about yourself so we can monetize you with advertisers, then you need to pay for the con content because, you know, we're not in this for philanthropic purposes. Right. And and so, um, but you know, it's something we're taking very seriously. I'm I'm also chairman of the IAB, and uh, which is uh, the CEO of the IAB is Randall Rothenberg, and he's been great in in helping to uh, structure a consortium of trade organizations that are have uh, come up with a um, 
um, uh, a plan for self-regulation because we certainly think we can do it ourselves. We don't need any help from the legislators. FTC seems to be uh, amenable to letting us do it ourselves, but we, we've got to do it right and we've got to do it well. And um, um, But it's a threat that we cannot uh, take for granted. Um, we, we have to do you know, our best to um, uh, self-regulate, keep some of the bad actors and, and try to drive them out of the business uh, and there, because there's, there's bad actors in every industry. But, uh, uh, you know, ultimately, um, uh, you know, the consumer, when they know, they don't care. But as you saw from the article, when you say to somebody, hey, did you know that when, when you went to that website, you gave them 64 different pieces of information about yourself? You know, it surprises people, and it makes them like, wow, what's going on here? Once they understand a little better, I don't think they're concerned about it, but it, it's a surprise. And when you have surprises like that, it's, you know, without much explanation, it can cause some concern. I guess yeah, I'm, I'm a bit jaded about that. That is an issue. Um, yeah, we're going to have to wrap up. I need to actually um, talk with you briefly at the end of the interview. Is there any um, anything that you want to mention that we haven't covered? I would just say that you know this is this industry is a fantastic industry, and I've been very fortunate to be a part of it for the last uh, it'll be almost 15 years now. And um, you know the change continues every day. It's it's so dynamic and. Uh, um, you know, I wouldn't trade the experience I've had over the last 15 years with uh, in any other industry. It's been uh, terrific. David, thanks for sharing your story. My pleasure.